0: Dear Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you remain on the throne and that you are always working your plan through the ages of history, Father. Every nation is a nation you appointed and you put those who live there in that location, as you say in your word, that you have divided men up by nations and that you have uh, created these things for the purpose of uh, administering your your will in the lives of each individual nation and the people who are in it. And Lord, you appoint rulers, you bring them in and out of power as you see fit, And, uh, Father, sometimes it's it's what we want, sometimes it isn't what we want. And in all cases, Father, it is the right thing for for your plan, Father, is good and you have a purpose in what you do. And could there be a book of Scripture uh, better suited to showing us that than the book of Daniel? I don't think so, Father. This is the book that says more than any other book in Scripture how you are in the one who is uh, in control of all the ebb and flow of history, uh, how you've written it all before it even takes place. We thank you, Father, for that reassurance and for that reminder as we study in Daniel tonight and what he had seen and what he saw and then what we get to learn from what he saw. Uh, let it encourage us, Father, and uh, also caution us, so that while we might be pleased in one moment and despondent in another, that we can guard ourselves against either of these reactions, knowing that, uh, Father, it's it's not these this world of, or the things of this world that would cause us to feel joy or to to feel sorrow. These things, Father, are passing. And We want to have our focus on things that are not. So thank you for that reminder as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight, we officially move into the second part of the book of Daniel. Chapters 2 through 7, where we just came out of, were written in Aramaic. And you may remember when I introduced the book, I said that there were two languages used to write this book, Aramaic and Hebrew. And the last six chapters, chapters 2 through 7, were written in Aramaic, and therefore we said that meant that Daniel had written them with an eye toward an audience consisting of both Jew and Gentile. In the day that this was written, the nation of Israel was in captivity in Babylon, and in Babylon they spoke Aramaic, which the Jews had learned. But the Jews still knew how to speak Hebrew, so they were able to look at both sides of this book. While the Gentiles could only have understood the Aramaic side of the book, so he wrote chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic, which traced the Lord's working to bring world empires in and out of power. And that was something that was appropriate for both the Jew and the Gentile to understand in Daniel's day. And even still today, of course. 2 through 7 was written in a chiastic structure, which we've been looking at. And that chiasm served to emphasize that the Lord was in control and that all the things that were going to happen according to this prophecy were coming according to his purposes. For Israel that they would be conquered that they would be oppressed by Gentiles but through it all they're under God's hand God is controlling it all and now Daniel returns to writing exclusively in Hebrew for the remainder of the book and that would tell us that he is now beginning to speak to only the Jewish audience or for us we might say to those who are of the mind of God and of the heart of God so that would include us of course today but not for the broader audience of Babylon certainly And the events that he's going to describe in some of these chapters are some of the most fascinating and important prophecies in the whole of Scripture. In chapters 8 through 12, Daniel receives visions that address each of the remaining nations in the age of the Gentiles. Named so because it describes this long period of human history in which God is going to purposely put Israel under the authority of Gentile oppressors. It began in 605 BC with Nebuchadnezzar. It continues today. And it will continue until Christ's second coming. That's the age of the Gentiles. It was divided into four parts, four kingdoms, and we are already in the fourth of the four. And as we studied through that chiasm and we understood the age of the Gentiles, and we learned what kingdoms relate to each of the four parts, We've learned a little bit about them. We've learned about the timing and the nature and some other things. But there is still yet more to know. In these chapters to come, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, we're going to learn more about these individual nations. But specifically, we're going to learn how these individual kingdoms are going to deal with Israel. How Israel is going to experience life under these kings, under these authorities. And in chapter 9, we'll learn the timing of this age, how long it lasts. So beginning today, Daniel begins to explain how the Medo-Persians will transition to the Greek Empire, and in later chapters, we're going to learn how the Greek Empire will proceed as well. Uh, Tonight, we learn a little bit about that, about the Greek Empire. But eventually, and, and fairly quickly, we move into that fourth kingdom. Remember, the age of the Gentiles is most of interest to us because of how it ends, because it brings Jesus back. And so that fourth kingdom is really the focus, and always has been. It will be again. So in the chapters to come, we're going to learn a little bit about Persia, a little bit about the Greek Empire, and a lot about the fourth kingdom and how it leads to Christ's second coming. Obviously, Daniel doesn't try to give us a, a full accounting of everything that happens during these many thousands or hundreds of years that are going to happen in each of these kingdoms. So instead, what he does is he focuses down on what is most important to Israel under those various kingdoms. What is it that's going to happen to Israel? And even more particularly than that, how each kingdom impacts the central purpose of the age of the Gentiles. That is how they trample Jerusalem, how they trample the temple, how they're going to oppress Israel, the people. That's the central definition of the age of the Gentiles, a period of time in which Israel is scattered, their city is trampled, and they are under Gentile authority. So tonight in chapter 8, the focus is on the second and third of those kingdoms, But we're going to go a little further than that as well. You'll see when we get there. The question tonight is, how will these kingdoms deal with Israel? How are they going to deal with the city of Jerusalem? How are they going to deal with the temple? And these visions come to Daniel, we're told, during the final years of the Babylonian Empire. So for Daniel and for Israel, these are truly prophecy. As Daniel received these, he's hearing about kingdoms yet to come. He was currently receiving these during the time of Babylon, the first of the four kingdoms. But, of course, the events in these chapters are just history for us now. The second kingdom has come and gone. The third kingdom has come and gone. We're in the fourth, as I said. That might lead you to ask, why do we really care anymore about chapter 8? Well, the first answer is this chapter serves to authenticate later chapters' prophecies. When you see how accurate Daniel is in describing the events of the Medo-Persian and Greek empires, you have greater confidence to trust in his later prophecies. That's the first answer. The second answer, though, is that, as I mentioned a moment ago, there will be some conversation here about the fourth kingdom, and there will be throughout all of the remaining chapters. So let's start. You'll see it unfold. Let's start in the first part of chapter 8. So in this chapter, we're going to learn about an unexpectedly powerful world leader who comes out of nowhere to dethrone a supposedly undefeatable opponent. Daniel 8.1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, Subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in a vision. And while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision and I myself was besides the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. And the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward northward and southward and no other beast could stand before him nor was there anyone to rescue from his power but he did as he pleased and magnified himself so we'll stop there for a second daniel dates this prophecy in verse one to the third year of Belshazzar, king of babylon remember chapter seven the chapter we just finished that was dated to the first year of Belshazzar, while chapter 5, that was dated to the final hours of Belshazzar's rule right before Persia came into the city. That's 12 years earlier. So we're jumping around here in time. 5 was in the future from this chapter, 7 was in the past from this chapter, now we're in 8. Clearly Daniel's not primarily concerned with the chronology of all of these things he's giving you the markers you know where it's happening in time he's not confusing you in that sense but he's organizing his book in order to convey the significance of these things not merely to relate them chronologically and his vision begins at a citadel at Susa Susa was an important city in the Babylonian Empire it's located about 200 miles east of Babylon about 150 miles north from the top of the Persian Gulf the Code of Hammurabi, a series of seven foot tall obelisks and clay tablets that were discovered in 1901 in the ancient place of Susa, was one of our most important archaeological finds showing what ancient life was like, ancient legal life was like. It was the law of the Babylonian king, Hammurabi, and it describes various rules for justice, for civil contracts, and so on. It's on display now in the Louvre. Susa was in, it says here, Elam. That's a province of Babylon. And today it's modern day Iran. It sat on the edge of the Babylonian Empire, the eastern edge of the empire. But the city later became the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire after they defeated Babylon. So they set up their capital in Susa. So in light of that, this image in his vision sort of has dual meaning. It represents Babylon's power, certainly, but at the edge of it, giving away to the next empire who will really occupy Susa in a new and more powerful way. And in Daniel's vision, he's been transported to that city, standing next to the Ulai Canal. It's an artificial waterway that they had built to connect two rivers that run near Susa. Daniel names himself and he's speaking in the first person. Previously, if you look back in the earlier chapters, he always talked about himself in the third person, as if someone else had wrote the account. Now he's always talking in the first. And when you remember that he's also changed his writing now into Hebrew, that would suggest that Daniel is now speaking as an eyewitness and doing so directly to the Jewish people concerning their shared future. Remember, this is all future to Daniel when he gets these visions. So it's as if he wants to make sure they understand he's talking to them directly about what they all have to look forward to. And then we're told in this vision of a ram with two horns, but it says one horn was larger than the other and coming up later than the other. Now, as we try to understand the meaning of a symbol here, that of the ram, you notice right away the lopsided nature of the horns, and that should remind you of something you've already seen in the book, that of the bear. you remember the bear stood lopsided also, unevenly, asymmetrically? When we read about that in chapter 7, we came to understand that that represented the unequal union of the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's because the Persians were far more powerful, and in short order, they really took control of the whole union. That by the end of it, it was just the Persian Empire. So immediately, you begin to think, well, maybe this ram with its unequal horns, could be another representation of the Medo-Persian Empire. They would seem to match. The, The imagery there seems to match. And then when we look a little more closely at the symbol itself, that of a ram, we're going to find confirmation of that assumption. Because the ram was an important symbol for the Persian Empire. In their pagan religion, the Persians represented their primary god as a ram. In fact, it was so important to them that the commanders in their armies would actually take real ram heads into battle with them even in the ancient zodiac of the night sky the one that we you know people still use today the constellations and their various names the constellation aries is a ram and each zodiac symbol in the sky has a country associated with it in ancient terms and persia was always associated with aries so we see confirmation that the horns must represent the two parts of the empire the medes and the persians and that lopsided ram is standing at the future capital of Persia, Susa, and that makes it a uniquely appropriate symbol for the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. By the way, having the longer horn growing last, well, the Persians were the more powerful, and they come up last because the Persians took control from the Medes at the end of the empire. They started together, they ended it as a Persian empire. And then you have the ram's behavior. The ram and the vision did as rams are wont to do, It butted everything within its reach in three cardinal directions. It does not go to the east because Persia is already in the east. It had no conflict with anything further east of itself. It did all its fighting in the other three cardinal directions. And those three directions, by the way, correspond to the three ribs that were in the mouth of the bear back in the earlier chapter. And then lastly, the power of the ram is unchallenged, doing all that it wanted, we're told in verse 4. And that would make sense because once the Medo-Persian Empire became the empire, there was no one to challenge it. Right, So it's all just lining up. The ram in this dream must be another picture of that second empire. Remember, as Daniel receives this, he's in the third year of Belshazzar. That's before the Medo-Persians had come into town. All right, Now we hear of another power coming to challenge this supreme ram. Daniel 8.5 While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him coming beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. You have a goat now, rams are male sheep, obviously goats are a different kind of animal here, so the change in the type of animal would seem to indicate a change in the kingdom, right? Much like we saw in chapter 7, every time a new beast came into the scene, a beast meant a new kingdom. So we might start with that assumption right here, new animal, maybe new kingdom. We've already seen the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire, right? So what we're looking at here is what kind of kingdom could come and challenge the Persians. Well, knowing what we already saw in chapters 2 and 7, it gets really easy, right? We just have to go naturally to assume that the goat must represent the Greek Empire since it's the next one in line. No other empire challenged the Persian Empire until the Greeks came along and dethroned them. And as you look back on the Alexandrian Empire, you find that the goat was the ancient symbol for Greece. The constellation Capricorn, which is Latin for goat horn, stood for Greece in the ancient Zodiac. And the features of the goat match other aspects of the Greek Empire. First, one big conspicuous horn. Normally goats have two horns. So possessing only one horn is notable, and it suggests one single powerful ruler over this kingdom. And sure enough, that certainly fits the history of Alexander the Great. He, he ruled alone. He single-handedly conquered the vast territory that would eventually become the Greek Empire. I think something like one and a half million square miles of territory he captured. Next, the way the goat took control from the ram. That fits history. It says, verse 6, the goat rushed at the ram. Certainly speed was an essential element in Alexander's strategy for victory. We saw that earlier when we looked at the beast because it was a leopard moving quickly. Alexander reached world domination. And only 10 years from the beginning of his military career, he defeated the Near East and the Middle East, in barely three years of fighting. And he defeated the Persians in a series of decisive battles that resulted in the end of their reign over the world. And the Persians greatly outnumbered the Greeks in the beginning of those battles. And as you remember, that was the style of Persian warfare. They just overwhelmed you. All right, so so far, everything's still tracking, right? If you wanted one more detail to confirm, it's in verse 8. Daniel predicts the early death of the leader, of this kingdom he says that the one horn on the goat will magnify himself yet at the moment he becomes mighty the horn is broken in other words he doesn't stay in power very long after he's conquered the ram right at the height of his power and sure enough that's a perfect description of alexander after he conquered persia he went further east into india he just couldn't stop but he eventually had to turn back because his troops got homesick they were tired of just always running after running away from home he eventually then brought them back he himself stayed in babylon because he had determined he was going to make Babylon his new capital city. Remember how massive the city of Babylon was? So in this day it was still standing, and he wanted to take advantage of it. Before he could even plan the next steps of government or future military campaigns or anything, he dies suddenly. He's in his 30s. And that detail is a stunning confirmation of the accuracy of Daniel's prophecy. I mean, we're talking years now before the Medo-Persian Empire has risen to power and centuries before the birth of alexander the the great and daniel is already predicting that he will have an early death right at the height of his military power or should i say the the lord has predicted that obviously because it's the lord who desired it alexander was said to have pointed to the book of daniel in his day and to have said that it proved he had a divine appointment with destiny to conquer the world and it was his motivation to go out as he did But he conveniently overlooked how the horn comes to its end right at the very height of that power, doesn't he? All right, after Alexander's death, there's a struggle for control over the kingdom. As you might expect, he had no heirs, he had no son. Eventually, civil wars resulted in the kingdom being divided four ways under the control of four of Alexander's generals. And those divisions of the empire ran largely east, west, north, and south. And that result is also uncannily predicted in Daniel's prophecy. Verse 8, we're told that in place of the large horn, there would be four conspicuous horns, and they're pointed to the four winds of heaven. Uh, the four winds in Hebrew that could also be been translated four spirits of heaven. It's pointing to the four cardinal directions, which corresponds to where the kingdom was divided. But that reference to the four spirits of heaven, that just indicates it's God. He's acting to make all these happen, because he said that's what he wanted to see happen. Up to this point, the prophecy is treading over old ground. We're kind of waiting for something new. Well, here it is verse 9 out of one of them came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east and toward the beautiful land it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground, perform its will, and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision and the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. We're going to have to exercise our our rules of interpretation as it applies to symbols if we're going to get it straight and avoid just groundless speculation, which is often a temptation. So we're looking at the goat. That's where we're still at. He's got his four horns now and not just the one anymore. That's where we left off in verse 8. And by logical conclusion, you would have to say that those four new horns are representing the four rulers of those four divisions of his kingdom. I mean, horns have already been established to be rulers. And so one went away and four new ones showed up. Okay, we got that. If that's true then, then continuing our logical assumptions here, then the smaller horn that grows up among the other four must also be another ruler of some kind. So now we've introduced a fifth person, in other words. That mention of a little horn, doesn't that sound awfully familiar? Doesn't that draw your attention back to the horns in chapter 7, right? In that chapter, you saw that little horn described on the fourth beast, And that horn, we came to understand, was a man who arrives in the fourth kingdom, but at the very end of the time of that kingdom. We identified him last week, calling him the Antichrist, as the Bible does. And we established from Scripture that he will come to his zenith of power three and a half years before Christ's second coming. But here we are in a different chapter. And this little horn, in this chapter, we know is part of a goat which is the symbol of the third kingdom, not the fourth kingdom. This is a horn that comes soon after Alexander the Great's death. So clearly this little horn has to be different than the one that's described in chapter 7, and the events surrounding his appearance are also different than those that we're told will happen at the end of the age. Nevertheless, the fact that this symbol is being used for the second time in so many chapters is not a coincidence. It's not like God ran out of symbols. He's purposely reusing the little horn symbol to draw our attention to some similarities between these two men. So though they lived in different times and under different circumstances, they are connected somehow in spirit, in action, in some fashion that we need to try to understand. Remember, being similar does not make something the same. But similarities have meaning. They have purpose. We need to understand them. So we'll keep that in the back of our mind. We'll get through this process and we'll come back to this. So to understand the connection, let's just start by looking at what does this little horn do? And first thing we hear is that he grows great in three directions. He goes south, east, and then toward the beautiful land. We know what south is, we know what east is, we don't know where he's starting yet, but then we hear of the beautiful land. Beautiful land in Scripture is always a reference to Israel, or you could say Palestine. Biblically speaking, Palestine refers to the area of land that encompasses Israel. In Jeremiah 3.19, for example, the prophet says, Then I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, beautiful land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, You shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. That's him speaking to Israel. Daniel, by the way, uses this same term several more times in this book, beautiful land, always in reference to the land of Israel. So these details begin to give us some understanding of who we're talking about. A man who would fit this description, someone who strikes out soon after the time of Alexander the Great, but still during the time of the Third Kingdom, and who accomplishes great things in the South and in the East and in Israel, particularly. The man who fits this description is the eighth king. Antiochus the Four is his name, Antiochus the Four. He was the eighth king of the Seleucid Empire. and the Seleucid Empire was one of those four that were created out of the Greek Empire. Seleucid Empire is located in what is present-day Syria. Antiochus fought against the other Greek divisions because he was seeking to gain power over them and try to reconstitute the Greek Empire. He fought to gain territory in the east. He fought to gain territory in the south. And he invaded Palestine and conquered the land of Israel. So, going back in history, looking for men who would fit the comparison, so far our best candidate is antiochus the fourth for being this little horn that comes up out of the other four let's go forward a little more verse 10 now we start to get to the main point the little horn kept growing until it reached heaven where it caused stars in the sky to fall to the earth and be trampled now i want to remind you daniel is describing things he saw in a vision so what he's seeing are things that are symbolic Nothing is literal it's a dream it's a vision so just as the horns stood for kings and the animals stood for various kingdoms, well then, similarly, the stars falling from the sky, they stand for something. They're not literal stars. So what do stars represent in Scripture? Remember what we said here. This is our chance to exercise two important principles of interpretation. Right, first, where do you find the answer to symbols? You don't make them up. You don't guess. You look at the Bible and the Bible interprets the symbol for you somewhere, perhaps in the same verse, perhaps in the same book, perhaps in the same chapter, but sometimes somewhere else in the Bible. But you do your homework. And if you did your homework in this case, you would find that when stars are used symbolically in scripture, most of the time they represent angels. So at this point, we might be tempted to stop and declare that these falling stars are fallen angels, which we would call demons. But before you can come to that conclusion, we must apply a second major rule of interpretation. This second rule is a check on our assumptions to make sure that the way we have concluded the symbol to mean angels. We need to double check that that fits the context. And so the second rule of interpretation and arguably the most important rule of interpretation generally is context. Does what we just concluded fit? For example, does it make sense that a man, because we know we're talking about a horn that represents a man, does it make sense that a man, maybe Antiochus IV, could reach up into the heavenly realm and cause angels to fall? Because that's what the symbols are saying if you put them together that way. It says here that this horn reached up to heaven, and this horn caused the stars to fall. Did you see, you see that, right? So if stars are angels, then can a man pull angels down, trample them, destroy them, in other words? Now suddenly our interpretation doesn't make much sense. Since we can't expect that a man would have the power to bring angels down from heaven. What do stars mean then? Well, in this case, we go back looking for other use of stars as symbols in Scripture. Because in some cases, and in this case, for example, the Bible may use a symbol in different ways in different places. Not generally, very rarely, actually, but sometimes. And here's an example. So when I go doing a little more homework, I find in Genesis 37 that stars can be used in another way. Genesis 37, 9 speaking of joseph now joseph had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said lo i have had still another dream and behold the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me he related it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him what is this dream that you have had shall i notice shall i and your mother and your brothers come to bow down ourselves before you to the ground all right you see how symbols in this dream were interpreted here differently joseph's dream had the sun the moon and the stars in it they were being used symbolically obviously and jacob his father when he hears the dream he gives the interpretation back to joseph he declares that the stars represent the sons of israel whereas he was the sun and his wife was the moon so now we have an alternate way to understand stars symbolically they're both coming out of the bible i'm just using them each to see do they fit in the context So if I return to Daniel 8, and now I use this new way of interpreting stars, that is, now we're saying stars here represents the sons of Israel, or we could just generally say all of the people of Israel. They all came from those sons, after all. They're all descended from those tribes. So we would say then that Antiochus comes into the beautiful land, which we know is Israel, and when he arrives, he defeats some of the sons of Israel, bringing them to destruction. And as it turns out, this fits the context perfectly. More than that, it fits history perfectly. Not only that, but it also fits Daniel's purpose in writing. Because he's explaining how each of these kingdoms will have impact on Israel. And history records that when Antiochus arrived in Palestine, he came with a particular vengeance against the Jewish people. In just one campaign against Israel, he killed 40,000 Jews and took another 10,000 into slavery. And having conquered the land, he then went further south. Remember, he goes in that cardinal direction, south south. And he was headed to Egypt, to the Romans. The Romans at that point were an ascending kingdom. hadn't yet conquered the Greek Empire, but they were on their way. But the Seleucid Empire was still holding on in Syria, so Antiochus IV travels down through Palestine, conquering Israel on the way, and then heads into Egypt, to Alexandria, to conquer the Romans. Or so he hoped. Instead, he lost to a Roman commander, Papilius Laenaeus. So he was forced to retreat back north into Palestine, coming back through Israel. Now he's angry, and he's looking for a way to take his anger out on the Jews. So in December of 168 BC, he seized Jerusalem on a Sabbath, and he began to do everything he could to offend the Jews. He put a statue of the pagan god Zeus in their temple, He ordered that a pig be sacrificed in the temple and the animal's blood poured out on the altar. That act was the most horrifying thing Israel had ever seen in their temple's history, even worse than seeing it sacked by Gentiles. It was so bad, in fact, that the Jewish people gave that moment a special name, a special title that has stuck in their collective memory. They took to calling it the abomination of desolation. We see a veiled reference to that event in verse 11. says here that the little horn will magnify himself to being equal to the commander of the host now the host here is a reference to the stars the host of stars remember what are the stars the sons of israel so we're talking about here a commander of israel that word commander it could mean the high priest and the high priest would fit the context actually it could mean god himself and certainly god would fit the context either one Putting this together, the little horn is magnifying himself as the greatest in Israel, stopping the sacrifices, we're told, and desecrating the temple. And Antiochus did all of these things. By the way, he also added the term Epiphanes to his name. We often call him Antiochus Epiphanes for that reason. But that was a name he gave to himself. You're actually honoring him if you call him that. Because that word means manifestation of God. In other words, the incarnation of God. He's manifesting himself to be God. Later, the Jews, though, to mock him, changed the word slightly to Epimenes. So from Epiphanes to Epimenes, and that means madman. They were calling him the madman. So he in a town in December 168 BC. In 171 BC, he removed the legitimate high priest of Israel, and he appointed a wicked man to take his place. And that prevented the legitimate daily sacrifices in the temple, because since this new guy was not truly the high priest, there could be no true daily sacrifice in the temple. His actions against Israel culminated with that desolation I mentioned in 168 BC. So in verse 12, Daniel is told, These things come to pass because of israel's transgression that's a reference to israel's failure to keep the old covenant remember that's what we said i think earlier in one of the chapters we studied it was israel's failure to keep the covenant god gave with them through moses which is the cause for the age of the gentiles this is a period of time that is penalty to israel for their sins under that covenant and this passage is confirmation that these terrible events are ordained by god in keeping with the poli- the promised penalties of that covenant so we're in other words the host of israel the people, will be given into the hand of this man for a time. He will fling truth to the ground. And by that, I think they mean that Israel and the temple were intended to be a testimony of truth to the world. But since the testimony has temporarily been suspended from being used and the people of Israel are no longer free to sacrifice, then truth has been flung to the ground in that sense. And then in verses 13 and 14, Daniel, we're told overhears this conversation between two holy people. That would seem to be a reference to angels. One angel then turning to another, having a little chat next to Daniel. And one angel asks the other angel, almost sounds like how you start a joke, doesn't it? Two angels walked into a bar. (laughs) So one angel turns to another angel and says, how long will Israel be subjected to these things? Now you know that they're not sitting there just having this conversation over the water cooler. This is for Daniel. They're having this obviously for his benefit. They want Daniel to get the answer because they know Daniel's not smart enough to have thought to ask the question. So they ask it for him, and the answer comes back, well, this stuff's going to go on in Israel for 2,300 evenings and mornings. That phrase, evening and morning, is the clear reference to the way Jews reckon a 24-hour day creation. There was evening, there was morning the first day, right? So 2,300 evenings and mornings would mean 2,300 24-hour days. And if you do the math, that's six years, four months, and 20 days. So for six years, four months, and 20 days... This stuff's happening. Once again, history bears out the truth of this prophecy. Beginning on September 9th, 171 B.C., the regular authorized sacrifices were not possible because they didn't have a legitimate high priest anymore. But then the Maccabean revolt ended Antiochus, and then they quickly set about cleansing the temple from the abomination of desolation, and then they went through a rededication in December 25th, 165 B.C., and that's where Hanukkah comes from. That is a memorial of that rededication process that cleansed the temple. Well, there are 2,300 days on the Jewish calendar between those two events. Between those two days. Here again, the accuracy of Daniel's prediction is uncanny. But you know, we should expect nothing less from God, of course. But that's not the point. We know these prophecies are clearly from God. The point is, it's validating that these things are from God and that Daniel is speaking with the authority of God. So that as one of these things comes to pass, that is, as the events of the near future are seen to be true for the Jewish people, then that validates that we should trust the rest of it as well. If you believe what he said about Alexander and all that came with Antiochus, etc., why would we have any doubt about what he said is coming still yet for us? That's the idea. Now, at this point, I've been working through the vision and its interpretation based on an analysis of the symbols, and we've been comparing that to history. But of course, Daniel did not have the benefit of hindsight as he got this message in the first time, right? So you know he's got to be thoroughly confused about the meaning of it. He doesn't have the reference of history to work against. And so the Lord provides Daniel with the interpretation of the vision in the second half of the chapter. Having this interpretation is going to serve as a useful confirmation for us that we're on the right track. But this interpretation introduces new information as well. I don't just mean more accurate interpretation. I mean new vision, new added information comes in through the interpretation side of this chapter. So we need to take a look at that as we go through. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. So stopping there for a second. Notice Daniel is assisted here by someone we're told looks like a man. He says it looks like a man. If it had just been a man, he would have said it was a man. The fact that he had to say it looks like a man is a way of saying it's not a man, but it looked like one. In verse 16, we discover this is no man. It's actually the archangel Gabriel. The name Gabriel means man of El, or as El means God, man of God. He is an archangel, position of power within the angelic realm. The angelic realm, by the way, is divided by scripture into three groups, We tend to use the word angels in a generic sense, but biblically there's actually a more specific sense. So there are cherubs. They are at the top of the ladder of angelic beings. Seraphim, who are somewhere below cherubs, and then angels are actually the bottom. They're like the worker class. Like the the worker ant, they're the angel. Gabriel and Michael are angels, but they are the top of that group. And they're the only two angels in the whole Bible that are named. Gabriel and Michael uh, both appear in this book. Then there's this other character sort of in the background here, sort of in the shadows, this voice between the banks of the channel, it says. Well, where are you if you're between the banks? You're in the water. So somewhere above the water, there is this other person, a man, Daniel calls him. And he speaks out to Gabriel saying, give Daniel the interpretation. You're going to hear more about this mysterious man between the banks later in this book. Meanwhile, Gabriel carries out the instructions. His first comment to Daniel is, Okay, Daniel, let me tell you what this is about. This is about the time of the end. That is our first clue that the thing that you're going to hear about in this dream looks forward to something even beyond just Persia and Greece. In fact, the vision has a second layer of meaning that draws our attention once more to the fourth kingdom. So let's read now the interpretation. Verse 18. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Pause there. And this is all very comforting. Confirms that we're on the right track. Daniel's first, he faints into something that looks like a coma, some kind of coma-like sleep in verse 18. This is actually significant because it, it would reflect a new stage to his vision, moving to a new phase of revelation. That would give us, I think, a little license to understand these visions in a new way. That in other words, we shouldn't just see this as mere repetition of our earlier conclusion, and then we, we're done and we move on. There's something new happening here, and that extra moment of coma-like suspended state is a way of getting us prepared to think more deeply about what he's being told. And in verse 19, Gabriel says, These things relate in some way to the end, to the final period, the indignation at the appointed time of the end. And he goes on to explaining the ram, the goat, the horns, and all that. And the explanation tracks exactly with our earlier interpretation. So these things describe events in the two periods of the age of the Gentiles. That is, of the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. But, and we don't need to repeat it all, it's obvious. I mean, I don't need to go through it in detail, you get it. But, then the archangel moves to explaining how these symbols will allude to other events that we haven't looked at yet, in a later day. Verse 23. In the latter period of their rule... When the transgressions have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Let's not forget what we know. We know the horn is the little horn that came up after the first four. Is Antiochus IV. I mean, historically... It fits. The timing, the 2300 days, all of that. It can't be anybody else. So everything we saw matches, and the early part of the interpretation confirms that. Okay? Places, dates, everything's a perfect match. Nevertheless, there are things we just read in the last passage that are new and do not fit Antiochus. So we know the horn is Antiochus. We know he's in the third kingdom. But now we're talking about things that seem to overlap with him, but yet go further than he did doing things he didn't do so we need to understand how these two truths are working together how these visions can certainly describe antiochus but how they then also are describing someone other than antiochus who comes at another point at a later point in this age of the gentiles how how do those two things work at the same time well first gabriel says in verse 23 that these events are set in the latter part of their rule you see that verse 23 what is their rule it must refer to the rule of the persians and particularly the greeks to both in general but especially to the ones that just finished in the earlier story that is the greeks so here again they must refer to antiochus so think about what he just said he said in the latter period of their rule and then he goes forward in time he says when the transgressors have run their course well antiochus is a transgressor So the fact that there are multiple here, plural, tells us that this is moving to the end of all of them. That is to say, after Greece, a king will arise. And so now we move into new territory, to something we didn't detect the first time in our vision. The vision told a story not only of what Antiochus would do in his day, but also of what another king would do in another day at the end of the age. And the two are connected such that the vision can tell both stories at the same time. Yet they are different kings living in different times. But their stories are so similar. One is virtually the same as the other. Therefore, we have to conclude that the first king, Antiochus, is a type for the second king who is yet to come. And a type in scripture is the use of a set of circumstances to prefigure some later coming set of circumstances. The earlier set of circumstances is a type... For the later set of circumstances. And a type is always a lesser in relationship to the fulfillment of the type, which is a greater. For example, the Bible says Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. That that's a type. Hebrews tells us that that's a type. It pictures the father sacrificing Christ also on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the same place where Jesus died. So clearly Abraham's attempt to sacrifice his son was not nearly as significant theologically as Jesus' actual sacrifice was in its day. So the type of Isaac and Abraham is a lesser to the greater fulfillment that came in Christ later. But those two circumstances have so many close parallels, it could be told in such a way that they overlap. But that's how types work. In this case, we have the life and circumstances of Antiochus as a lesser type to the life and circumstances that will surround some later king yet to come who will be a greater fulfillment of that earlier type. And in verse 23, Gabriel says, This coming king will be insolent and skilled in intrigue. The word in Hebrew for insolent, it it means to be strong in, in a rough or outrageous way. And skilled in intrigue means literally it's having an understanding of puzzles or enigmas. So this is a man who's very strong, but in a kind of undisciplined, unpredictable way. And yet with a special insight to understand his place in history and perhaps to solve tricky problems. You know, that's a very effective and dangerous combination of traits in any aspiring world leader. Next in verse 24, we learn this man is powerful, but not, it says, by his own power. Here's where we start to see things diverging from Antiochus. This man, whoever he is, gets his power from somewhere else, somewhere outside himself. And yet, with this great power, he's able to destroy to an extraordinary degree, to destroy like no one has ever destroyed before. And it's details like that that tell us we're looking at someone else besides Antiochus here, because, first of all, Antiochus relied very much on his own power to do what he did. It wasn't an overwhelming power. In fact, he couldn't even conquer Egypt. And he only held on to Israel for a time. And that's one thing these two men do seem to share. It says they both prosper and are successful, at least partially, in destroying the holy people. That's one connection between them. Remember, these last four five chapters of the book deal with how these coming Gentile nations impact the nation of Israel. That's what we're focused on right now. We know there's this age. We know there's these four kingdoms. We know that Israel's under them. Now Daniel's filling in some gaps to say, here's what each of them in turn is going to do to you when it's your turn under them. And so we have Antiochus, and now we have this future king as well. The heart of the message is in verse 25. Because of this coming king's shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. That statement's a little enigmatic. Remember we learned about the little horn last week, the the one that comes up out of the 10, etc., the 11th. We learned that out of the book of Revelation, that that little horn of the fourth beast is a ruler in the very last days of this age. He gains his power at about the three and a half year point of tribulation, three and a half years before Jesus' second coming. He rules the entire world. And if you remember, we said he does it because he calls himself God and directs that the whole world would worship him. And he's able to convince the world to accept that lie because he is resurrected from the dead. He dies at the three-and-a-half-year point in tribulation. He's dead for three days. But we learned last week that by the power of Satan, Satan resurrects his body, the man that the book of Revelation calls the beast, And this little horn, the beast, the Antichrist, all the same guy here, he is resurrected for three and a half years, and that resurrection convinces the world that he is the God that he says he is. So now Gabriel says that this king, speaking again about this horn, once again portrayed by a little horn here, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. The deceit that this coming king will cause to succeed is this lie that he is God that he is the resurrected Messiah, and he will cause this lie, this deceit, to succeed, it says, because of his influence, and that is the power given to him by Satan. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. He says, "...the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming." That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. That is, the little horn, the beast. And with with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You see how it lines up? The man of lawlessness is this same man, the Antichrist. He comes with power from Satan in accordance with the activity of Satan. He has Satan's power. He does false wonders. He comes with a deception of wickedness. And this deluding influence that the Lord sends upon the world is their believing in a false testimony that this man is Messiah. And then, having received Satan's power, having been resurrected, he then magnifies himself in his heart, Gabriel says, back in Daniel. And of course, we know Antiochus did this. We've already seen that. But then again, so will the Antichrist to an even greater degree. Antiochus went around saying, I'm Epiphanes. I'm God manifested. Antichrist goes around to the world saying, I'm not just God manifested. I'm God. And you all worship me. Paul tells us this, too, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. He says, let no one in any way deceive you for... It, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat, look, he takes his seat in the temple of God. There's only one temple, right, the Jewish temple. So he sits in the temple of God displaying himself as being God, it says. Here again, these two men align themselves not only by their desires but by their activities Antiochus went into the temple sacrificed blood from a pig stood up a Zeus statue and then suspended all the sacrifices to any other God and declared that he was God manifested and the Antichrist does something to an even greater degree in his own day next Gabriel says this man will destroy many who are at ease the Antichrist will come into power at his day in, in the in the time of tribulation, promising peace, but destruction will come upon those who have put their trust in him. Jesus confirms this as well in Matthew twenty four, in twenty four thirty six. He says, "But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah." Now he's speaking here about the rapture, the return for for the church. But in the days of that event, he says, for as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, the so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, that associated with his return for the church is this worldly mindset that everything is great and everything's at peace and there's nothing to worry about. In other words, if you're thinking that the Lord's return for the church or any of these other things come at a time when we're in the middle of tribulation or things are terrible and the world's in upheaval, his own words indicate, no, everyone's acting like the world is perfectly hunky-dory fine. And it's in the middle of that God begins the disruption. It would seem as though there's a calm before the storm, people being destroyed while at ease. Finally, we're told that this coming king will oppose Jesus himself, the prince of princes. Now, here again, Antiochus did not oppose Christ. Christ wasn't there for him to be opposing. But the Antichrist is opposing Christ in the very fact that the Bible calls him the Antichrist. That is, he is the one who comes claiming to be Christ in opposition to the claims of Jesus as Christ. And then the Bible says this opposition culminates with the Lord's second coming when the Antichrist is destroyed. We read this earlier just a moment ago in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That confirms what we said about the Antichrist earlier, that he lives in the very last days of this age that lead us into the second coming of the Lord. Notice in verse 25, Gabriel said this king will be destroyed without human agency. Clearly a reference to Jesus defeating him. By the same token, by the way, that precludes us from believing that this is speaking only of Antiochus because that verse makes no sense if we're talking about Antiochus. He was not destroyed without human agency. A bunch of humans called Maccabeans destroyed him with their agency. He was taken out by Maccabeans. Finally, notice that Gabriel ends saying this vision pertains to many days in the future. Verse 26, that footnote confirms we're looking at something beyond what Antiochus did. But as I've said, Antiochus mirrors the things that we see here in many cases. So we're learning that Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. In fact, biblically, Antiochus is the only confirmed, clearly identified type of the Antichrist in Scripture. God brought him to Israel in the time of the third kingdom, strictly so that he could give to Israel and to you and I a preview of what will be happening in the last days. So that even what Antiochus did in his own day wasn't the main purpose. He was being used to project something about what was coming. So you could say the Antichrist will be Antiochus on steroids. He will do similar things, but in greater, more terrible ways. And in particular, the abomination of desolation will be repeated in the day to come. But it will be much more severe than Antiochus with a pig. Jesus refers to this coming abomination as the breaking point in tribulation when all hell breaks loose, literally. Matthew 24:15. he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And he goes on from there. Notice Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, keep in mind, Jesus spoke those words hundreds of years after the abomination of desolation that came through Antiochus. And yet he's speaking about a future one. When you see he, then he gives his, his indication of what to do next. So he's and then he says, when you see the one spoken of through Daniel, the prophet. Well, Daniel, the prophet speaks primarily about the one of Antiochus. So Jesus's words in Matthew twenty four fifteen 15 become confirmation to us that the Daniel 8 reference to the abomination of desolation is a type prefiguring a future of the same event, a more significant one to come. He confirms for us that Antiochus in chapter 8 is a picture of something happening even later. And notice he also has spoken through Daniel the prophet let the reader understand. It's interesting to me that he had the uh, you know that, that God was already anticipating people like you and I sitting in a Daniel study at some point. <laughs> going through this book and he's he's encouraging us to understand what is obviously a fairly complex Idea. I mean, we're getting it. You guys are following me, I can tell. But to just launch into explaining to someone how it's talking about Aniagos, yeah, but it's also talking about another guy. But it says you're interpreting the dream given to Daniel by Aniagos. Yeah, I know. But he's also telling you about another guy. It's a type. It's a complicated thing. Let me tell you more about it later. That's a rich conversation. We're getting through it, but that's what he's saying here. Let the reader understand. That's a polite way of saying, give this some thought. It's a complicated thing. So the little horn of chapter 7, that little horn, we know is a vision of the coming Antichrist. And now we know that the little horn of chapter 8 is also a vision of the same thing, of the Antichrist. But in the case of chapter 8, it also stands for Antiochus IV. But that association is just for the purpose of creating the picture of the Antichrist in the first place. By that picture, we come to understand even more of what the Antichrist will do. So why do we need this prophecy? Why do we need chapter 8? Well, in a sense, you and I don't need it, since as a part of the church we are destined to never see the antichrist while we are on the earth paul said in the earlier passage i read that the spirit of the antichrist that is satan himself is being restrained currently by the restrainer or the holy spirit who is present on earth in the church and then paul goes on to say that once the holy spirit is removed once the restrainer is removed from the earth then satan will have the freedom to act in raising up this Antichrist that he is desperately desiring to see rule the world so that he might exert his influence in that way. And the removal of that restraining influence of the Holy Spirit happens when the church itself is removed. So I ask again, who needs this prophecy? Well, it was written in Hebrew primarily to help Israel understand how the age of the Gentiles would impact Israel in its successive stages. In Antiochus' day... The people who experienced this, those in Israel who had received this prophecy from Daniel a few centuries earlier, they would have taken some comfort, I imagine, in knowing from Daniel that they would be oppressed only for a time from Antiochus. Only 2,300 days. Once the Maccabeans succeeded in killing him, they could see the faithfulness of God toward Israel in his word. But even now, it has value for Israel because in a future day, Israel is going to find itself under the reign of the Antichrist in tribulation. Those who are unbelieving will go into the tribulation. And uh, those in Israel who turn to their word may come upon Daniel 8, may come upon Matthew 24, and come to understand that what they're experiencing is a terrible reign that's not intended to destroy the nation, but has the goal of ultimately bringing them into glory at the end of that period of time, though many will suffer, many will die in the process that he will gain a measure of success, as Antiochus did. But in the end, he will be destroyed, and his reign goes only for a time, times, and half a time. And in the process, perhaps they see Jesus as their Messiah. That's the ultimate goal of these prophecies. We understand it for our own value, but we also see that its target audience might be a little different than us. Next week, we look at the timing of the age of the Gentiles. That is, how long does Israel have to wait for all of these events to come to pass? That's Daniel 9. In closing, Father, I thank you for um, granting us just a small understanding of what you have planned, of, of not keeping it from us, but of giving us both the encouragement and uh, just awe-inspiring uh, recognition of what you do in, in history, how you can bring things together, how you, how you make what you wish to happen come to pass. And we thank you, Father, that you've uh, hid it in, hidden it in your word, but yet revealed it to children like us. And we pray that you reveal it to more according to your will. And uh, now that we understand these things, Father, I pray that perhaps you'd use us to make that revelation known to somebody. Perhaps, Father, someone who could come to faith from a, an appreciation for how big you are, how big a God we have, how much he is in control of all things. seems like we live in a time and in an age when these things are all more important, Father, when people are talking about how can things come to pass that seem so different than they expected. Or how does God turn things to the direction we want in miraculous ways at the last minute? Those are questions, Father, that get answered in the Word. We ask, Father, you'd use what we've learned to help others understand it too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.